0: Please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to read the rest of the chapter that we didn't read in the midst of our call to generosity. So that means we're going to read verse 16 to 20. We are going to again try to cover up the cover the entire chapter this morning. So bear with me. Vegas chapter 10, starting in verse 16. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the go to the sin offering. And there it was, burned up. He was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Oh, I didn't give you a chance to say it with me, sorry. Endures Forever. There you go. Sorry. You can have a seat. Changing all kind of Baptist routine today, right? Love it. So we've had a saying around our house recently, um, in somewhat of a disciplinary tactic of, hey, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Um, Hey, uh, do you think swinging that is a good idea or... A bad idea. Do you think touching your sister is a, a, a good idea or a bad idea? Is that, is that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? I'll spare you any additional uh, details, but as parents, it's our responsibility to teach our kids discernment, to help them distinguish between good and bad decisions. Ultimately, as a Christian parent, we want to teach our kids the thoughts, attitudes, and actions that glorify the Lord and the ones that don't. In our passage today, we we see a tragic example of a failure to discern between what pleases and displeases the Lord. A failure to distinguish between the true worship of God and what we're calling a parody of worship. A parody, you know, it's a a caricature, it's an imitation or spoof of the real thing. In fact, that's the big idea of today's text. The priest, as the spiritual leaders of Israel, were to distinguish between true worship and a parody of worship. So, two weeks ago, if you were here, the last time we were in the book of Leviticus, we got on a plane. We took a little trip from Genesis to Revelation. We landed the plane several times until I forgot about the plane analogy, so it crashed and we had to repair it and take off again, but this week we're going to do an investigation. So I invite you all to put on your deerstalkers and, and take a look at the crime scene we have ahead of us. You know what a deerstalker is, everybody? Sherlock Holmes hat? No? Anybody? All right. Worth a shot. Cross that one out from my analogy list from now on. Okay. So we're going to try and look at exactly what happened here. What What is chapter 10 saying? And then we're going to look at some very specific clues to come to understand the significance of what happened and exactly what it means to us. And so in order to really understand the crime, we are going to actually have to understand what came before it. And what came before it are chapters 8 and 9. Right, kids? That's how it works. 8, 9, 10. They go in order. So in chapter 8 and 9, here's what we see. We have a picture of true worship. That's what we looked at when we... Saw that a couple weeks ago. We have a a, a picture of true worship. We have worship that is according to the Lord's command. If you guys remember, when we were in chapter 8, I pointed out that as the Lord commanded was the mantra of that chapter. It's repeated over and over again. And and the point was clear. All they did, they did in order to honor and worship the Lord. And so, uh, in chapter 9... That continued, right? Exactly how the Lord commanded. That theme is, as Moses commanded Aaron to do certain things, and Aaron, in obedience, began to offer sacrifices on behalf of himself in Israel. And again, we see a same refrain there, as the Lord commanded. Or in this case, it's actually as Moses commanded. And the two of those are really interchangeable in this context. See, see Moses is only commanding what the Lord commands, nothing more, nothing less. And we saw in chapter 9 that Aaron obeyed. In chapter 9, remember, he, he offered all the sacrifices according to the Lord's command. He offered them how the Lord commanded, when the Lord commanded, where the Lord commanded. And then there's that glorious appearing of the Lord when the fire comes forth and consumes the sacrifice. And so the people respond appropriately. What do they do? They fall down on their faces and they shouted. It was an illustrative way of saying they worshipped their God. And so, all was going well. The priesthood has been established. That's a good thing. The Lord has appeared in glory. That's a really good thing. Israel was worshipping. Things were really looking up. And then we come to chapter 10. In just an instance, triumph turns to tragedy. What we have in chapter 10 is we have a parody of worship. That's really what we have, a parody of worship. The the contrast, the the differences here could not be sharper. Remember, chapter 8 9, we see the refrain, as the Lord commanded. That's important. We hear it repeatedly. And what do we find in the very first verse of chapter 10? It says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. That, that should be the first clue that things have already taken a turn for the worse. At the end of chapter 9, we read about the Lord appearing in glory, consuming the sacrifice, communicating the Lord's acceptance of that offering. But what do we see in chapter 10? It's not the offering that's consumed with fire, but the offerer. The fire comes not in favor, the fire comes in judgment. And this is a picture again of a parody of worship. This is worship offered to God that is really no worship at all. It's unacceptable worship. It's a cheap imitation. It's a spoof of the real thing. But how did this happen? How exactly... Did they get here? What exactly, as we're looking at this crime scene, investigating this, what took place? How did it happen? This is where we want to start to look at the text. Let's see if there's any clues, as we might understand what exactly brought this on. And, and, and listen, I'll be honest, we don't really know all the details beyond what's here in verses 1 and 2. There are, however, some other clues in the text, and outside of our text, they're going to help us understand. The first, I think, is in verses 8 and 11. In verses 8 and 11, you read that with me, the Lord gives this prohibition against the drinking of alcohol. This prohibition against the drinking of alcohol, that's probably our first clue. Specifically, they are not to drink any strong drink or wine before they enter the tent of meeting. They're not to come before the Lord that way. Now, did it strike anybody else as odd that that just took place in chapter 10 like that? And because of that, many commentators believe that this actually points back to Nadab and Abihu. Some believe the reason this prohibition is given is because Nadab and Abihu had been intoxicated when they attempted to bring this strange, unauthorized—excuse unauthorized, me—fire before the Lord. It could very well be the case, right? That the after-party following the seven days of consecration and the successful inauguration went on a little too long. They had a little too much strong drink. It's possible that that's the case. But in chapter 16 in Leviticus, we see another possible clue. If you have your Bibles, just flip over there real quick. Chapter 16 gives us another clue here in the first two verses of chapter 16, where it says this. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord, and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So, clue two here would be, don't come in at any time. That's the charge that the Lord gave to Moses to give to Aaron. Now, now, later on, the Lord's actually going to tell him when he may come into the holy of holies. So he doesn't mean tell him not to come ever. He means don't come whenever he wants. But, but we see before this instruction that reference back to Nadab and Abihu. And, and many commentators believe that this is here because Nadab and Abihu attempted to go into the most holy place to offer up their strange fire, which the Lord had not commanded. Now, this might not seem like a big deal at all. But, but if this was the case, if they were attempting to enter the Holy of Holies uninvited as they wanted, how they wanted, when they wanted, then this was a huge deal. Especially if they were intoxicated. In fact, a, a greater dishonor and disrespect could hardly be mentioned. Just imagine a king who demanded his servants to honor and glorify him to bring before him uh, gold coins... And instead, some of the closest royal servants who know him the best barge into his throne room uninvited with those little chocolate gold pieces covered with gold foil. Now, our kids are in here, so that probably doesn't sound like too bad. Now, imagine they've eaten the chocolate out of them and just left the gold foil, all right? That might be better. It's really, look, it's a spoof of what God invited. And so regardless of what the actual situation was, whether these clues point to what transpired, what we know is this was not an offering commanded by the Lord. And that's of what's most importance. That this offering was not according to the Word of God. It was not according to His will and therefore was not true worship. This offering was not according to the Word of God. I want to make sure we see that. Through chapters 8 and 9, all that has been done in approaching the Lord has been done according to his initiative. Here, for the first time in Leviticus, we have an attempt to offer God something he has not commanded. And much like the golden calf, it's rejected. Emmett? It? Stop. Yes, sir? Yes, sir? Nope, just stop. Thank you, buddy. Okay, sorry about that. Judgment is the result. So Adab and Abihu, in result, were incinerated. In verse 3, the Lord explains what just took place. And he's, here's how he explains them in these words. He says, And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Aaron understood and accepted the Lord's response. Now, this is really at the heart of this passage in Leviticus 10. Right here in the Lord's explanation of why Nadab and Abihu were consumed with fire is the very thing we want to hang out on. But before we do that, I I want to move through the rest of the text. Okay, so just just put a pin in verse 3 for me. Don't literally do that. Just remind yourself not... I don't want you to poke your Bible through. Uh, But I want to make sure we see the entire scene. So we're going to take a little... A little respite, a little break right here. Verse 3. And then we're going to look at the entire scene. We're going to come back to this. See, verses 1 through 3 are a parody of true worship. Praise God, what we see in the rest of the chapter is a restoration of true worship. A restoration of true worship. That's a big word. I don't think we have that one written down. That's good. So in verses 4 through 5, here's what happens. Moses offers a cleanup operation. He asks Aaron's cousins to come move the bodies, which everybody's got a pair of those cousins, right? Um, They're ready to call in case you need to move a body. Um, Even even Aaron did. Uh, But they obey Moses. Now, remember, obeying Moses is tantamount to obeying the Lord. And here's what happens. Moses then orders Aaron and his sons not to mourn publicly in verses 6 and 7. They also obey Moses. We also read in in verse 7, and they did according to the word of Moses. Now, I want to pause here because this blows our minds, right? That blow anybody else's mind? That seems kind of harsh to us, doesn't it? I mean, Aaron just lost his two oldest sons. He, He accepts the Lord's response as he must be regarded as holy and glorified among the people. He's silent, and then he's told not to mourn. Let me, let me clarify what this means here. Really, what's, what's taking place is Aaron's told not to partake in the mourning or grieving rituals. Okay, he, He's not to tear his clothes. He's not to let down his hair, taking off his holy headgear. He's not to undo what the Lord did in consecrating and sanctifying Aaron unto himself. This does not mean that Aaron could not grieve doesn't mean that Aaron could not be sad. The Lord is not insensitive to his grief. Israel, as a nation, was to undergo the mourning and grieving ritual that was common to the ancient Near East. But partaking in the grieving ritual would have required Aaron to set aside his holiness and office before the Lord. They would have had to treat the Lord's holy thing with contempt ripping their consecrated clothes and taking off their holy headgear and that would have resulted in their death. It would have brought condemnation or wrath upon Israel. And as, as hard as this is for us to wrap our minds around, and it is, if we're honest, this is difficult, There was something more important even than going to Aaron's son's funeral. And that is Offering true worship as the Lord commanded. Do we see that? I mean, look, many of us will come to a text like this or others like it and will attempt to twist it or minimize it. Maybe even turn back from following the Lord Jesus at this very point. And and by the way, the Lord Jesus had this very point. (laughs) In fact, Matthew chapter 8, verses 21 through 22, the reason I say that is because it would be turning back from the Lord Jesus. Look what happens in Matthew eight twenty-one and 22. The Bible says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Later, he would say in Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That, that's tough. I mean, is that hyperbole? Yes. Is it exaggeration for a bit of effect? Yes. We are not being commanded to hate father, brother, sister, or mother But the point could not be clearer, and it's the exact same point made here to Aaron. There is something of far greater importance than our relationship even with our own family and any other relationship, and that is ultimately our relationship with the Lord. The the worship and fellowship with the Lord is to be our highest priority and calling. Okay, verses 8 and 11, let's, let's move on. The Lord reaffirms Aaron's calling and reminds him of his primary task as high priest. He reaffirms his calling, reminds him of his primary task as high priest. This is actually of incredible importance, and we'll come back to this just like we will do in verse 3. So just put pins all over the place here now. The Lord only speaks twice in the entire chapter of chapter 10 of Leviticus, if you're paying attention. He speaks in verse 3. In verses 8 through 11. So so we want to take note of that just hermeneutically. But for now I simply want to to point out here the Lord's unmediated response to Aaron. This is the only place in all of Leviticus the Lord speaks directly to Aaron without Moses present. The, The Lord is assuring him through this unmediated instruction that the sin of his sons does not or did not qualify him from the role of high priest. He's still the one. Aaron is still the one. And and so we move on in verses 12 through 15. Moses reminds him, therefore, to finish his work according to God's word. They still needed to eat the grain offering as prescribed by the Lord. They, They needed to do that task because it had still been assigned to them. And then in verses 16 through 20, we see that Aaron honors the Lord by showing proper reverence for him and his commands. And I realized when we read this text at the beginning of the service, that looking closely at those verses, you might be asking how I arrived at that conclusion. Right? So, so Moses gets upset about them not eating the sin offering that was offered on behalf of the people. That's what happens. Why? Because we read earlier in chapter 6 that, that anything that was offered on behalf of the people was to be eaten by the priest in the Lord's holy place. That was command. So so Moses hears, Moses finds out that's not done. The sin offering was burnt in its entirety on the altar. And so Moses is probably thinking, great, goodness gracious, I just told you all of this. Now I'm probably going to lose two more nephews here. And so so here we have this encounter between Moses and Aaron. and, And listen to Aaron's response in verses 19 through 20. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content. We read that, and we're like, huh? So, So here's what happened. Moses points out that the sin offerings were offered, something really bad happened. And Aaron says, well, should I eat the sin offering in light of all this? And Moses seems content with that answer. It it appears we're missing something. And what we're prone to miss is the fact that Aaron is revealing his heart's desire is truly to honor and revere the Lord. He's presented a case here that's not actually covered up to this point in Leviticus. They know what to do with the sin offering, but what we don't see explicitly stated anywhere in Leviticus chapters 1 through 9 is if your sons are incinerated, what do you do with the leftover food offering for those priests? It's just not there. So what do they do? Aaron was pretty sure if that was the case, it seems like another sin offering or burnt offering was due before they were in a position to partake in that offering. So Moses approves because Aaron desires to do right by the Lord. See, Aaron is applying the lessons of the sacrifice in the absence of explicit directives. He knows the Lord is holy. He knows sin defiles. He knows just a moment ago there was a great sin that took place in the middle of the Lord's holy dwelling place. Are they fit at this moment to partake of these holy offerings that belong to the Lord? Maybe the best thing to do would be to dispose of them in a holy way, on a holy altar, in a holy place. I think this is the restoration of the true worship. To desire to do as the Lord commands. Aaron's desire was to honor and glorify God, and so Moses approves. True worship is restored. That's the scene of Leviticus chapter 10. Now, let's put the deerstalkers back on and go back as agents. They're looking at this crime scene. And look at those two specific clues very closely. Because I think they unlock the significance of this chapter. So we're going to look at a closer investigation of previous clues. The first is the Lord's response to this entire ordeal in verse 3. Okay, Here's his response. He says, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before the people, I must be glorified. This horrible, tragic event takes place. And that's the Lord's response. What did Aaron get from this response that empowered him by the grace of God to endure the loss of his two sons? The response is simple Uh, Among those who are near to the Lord, God would be treated as holy. Those who come near me, referring specifically, yes, to the priest, but generally to the people of Israel in that context, it is what this is it's a recognition of his holiness. To regard the Lord as holy is to treat Him and His things as holy. But the the second part of this little couplet here really gets to the heart of the matter. What is the purpose? And before all the people, I must be glorified. Here's Here's what I come to understand about this text, and you probably won't see it here, but it's true. True worship is evangelical through and through. It really is. True worship is evangelical through and through. True worship is meant to testify about a holy God before all people. It is meant to bring the glory of God to all places. It is meant to be evangelical. It's a part of God's redemptive plan. Israel was to offer true worship not simply because God is worthy and deserving, but because God desires to be glorified in all the earth. Don't forget who these people are. They're the seed of Abraham, aren't they? Abraham received the promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. We hear God reminding his people that right here, I will be regarded holy before my people because I must be glorified before my people. The true worship of God in Israel was going to result in the true worship of God by all people. So what in the world does that have to do with Nadab and Abihu? Well, their failure to regard him as holy brought upon them judgment. But don't miss this. The Lord is saying, I must be regarded as holy because of your true worship. Or through the judgment of those who do not regard him as holy, God is also glorified. This is tough. Through the judgment of those who do not regard him as holy, God is also glorified. That's a theme, by the way, that runs from Genesis to Revelation. The glory of God is often revealed through judgment. The Lord was not just glorified because he saved Noah, the Lord was glorified because the flood destroyed the wicked. The Lord was not just glorified because he refused to allow the people of Babel to make a name for themselves and stay in one place. He was also glorified in judgment because he scattered them as he intended. The judgment of Pharaoh was for the purpose of making his name known among the people, not just Israel. This is what Paul's getting to the point of in Romans chapter 9, in verses 22 and 23. He says this, he says, What if... God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory. So, we see that God is glorified also even through the judgment of the wicked. And so the judgment of Nadab and Abihu was an act of faithfulness. It was. Did you you didn't pick that up when you read it this week, right? But yet it is. The judgment of Nadab and Abihu is an act of faithfulness. The Lord was being faithful to his redemptive plan to restore fellowship with his people. Verses 8 and 11 actually just only help us understand verse 3. Verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, "Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink you nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. Why? It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy. And between unclean and clean. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes where the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Look. The the point of not drinking before they enter the tent is not about the benefits of or dangers of alcohol. That's not the point. The point is they needed to be able to distinguish and discern, and alcohol makes that hard to do. One of their primary tasks as priests was to distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean. Alcohol would impede their ability to do that. This is how they regarded the Lord as holy, by differentiating between holy things, His things, and common things. By recognizing that he alone is holy by nature. And we remember that from chapter 7. Remember the list of those things the Lord already explained to us that some things are holy, some things are common. Holy things are never to be treated as common. And, And actually, the next chapters, the next section from chapters 11 through 15 are going to cover in detail the distinctions that are to be made in Israel. Nadab and Abihu serve as a case in point for the importance of distinguishing between the holy and the common. By approaching the Lord's sanctuary how they wanted, when they wanted, they treated it like it was their own tent. They didn't properly distinguish between the holy and unholy, and they profaned the Lord's name in the process. God would not be glorified by all His people if He proved Himself unwilling or unable to safeguard His holy things. This is not an unloving act. Quite the contrary. Hear me. It's the same, it's not unloving to discipline our kids. Did you know that? If our kids disrespect, it is loving to discipline them. And if we're honest, we're not always deserving of respect. Yet, we teach them to respect us. How much more should the Lord discipline those whom He loves when we disrespect Him? You know what you get when you fail to demand respect and discipline? A failure to demand respect and discipline would result in a generation of self-centered, disrespectful, rebellious, insolent young adults who are utterly unwilling to distinguish between the holy and the common. Right? I mean, that's our culture. Now, Now remember, as goes the priest here, so goes the people. This is why the priest obeying the word of the Lord was of such importance. This is why the death of Nadab and Abihu was necessary. Mercy in this situation would not have been merciful. So the judgment of Nadab and Abihu was an act of faithfulness. The Lord was protecting his redemptive plan to restore fellowship with his people. And as we saw two weeks ago, Israel often traded that authentic worship of God for a parody of worship. Israel eventually not only fails to distinguish between the holy and the common, but eventually they fail to distinguish between good and evil. Isaiah reminds us of that in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 24, where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One in Israel. Friends, you need to hear this. There is no true worship where the word of God is despised. We have to understand that. There is no true worship where the Word of God is despised. Where the Word of God is rejected or neglected, true worship is not there. And in that, saying that, we also need to rightly confess, we often offer a parody of worship. And I mean, you and I. It's the very reason why we were created. You know that, right? You were purposed in your creation to offer our creator and sustainer, the lover of our souls, true worship. That's the goal of our lives, to enjoy God and glorify Him. How close are you to achieving that goal? Do you ever offer God wholehearted devotion and submission that He requires? I mean, look, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless how you answer that last question, the answer is no. You've never offered God true worship. Your worship is always a parody of worship. I mean, look, you you may show up at church sometimes. You may do some good things. You may pray when you need something. But apart from Christ changing your hearts and declaring you clean because you're trusting and resting in the finished work of his sacrifice on your behalf, it's rejected by the Lord. All of it. And if we're honest, we would all confess that we often offer God what we want, when we want, how we want, according to our will, not His. And if that's the case, friends and family, then it is therefore far less than true worship. Here's the reality we need to grasp. Each and every one of us are as deserving as Nadab and Abihu of being consumed by the Lord's fire. Being under his divine justice. And, and we see this picture, we read it, and it's so far away from us, it's, it's like we're turning on a movie in our minds. But the reality is, two human beings made in the image of God were consumed by fire because of their irreverent act in the worship of God. And we are no better, no different, and no less liable to that very same judgment. Our only hope is a good and strong hope, but it's our only hope. Our only hope of, resca- of, of escaping excuse me, God's wrath is trusting in the true worshiper, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Our only hope of escaping God's wrath is trusting in the true worshiper, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the picture of everything that Nadab and Abihu were supposed to be. He is the exact opposite of what they were. His life was true worship. He always regarded his father as holy. He always did as the Lord commanded and never did as the Lord had not commanded. But at the end of his life, he was consumed by wrath. In fact, Nadab and Abihu stand under God's judgment because they offer a parody of worship yet the true worshiper who offered nothing but true worship undergoes God's judgment for our parody of worship. That's the gospel. The wrath that fell on Christ is bringing glory to God throughout all the earth. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Christ is the answer to that must. Okay, so, so what about us now? What is it about us? What about you and I and the people in this room? We read Nadab and Abihu. We read it as a narrative. That's happened. That's crazy. That's, wow, it's nothing. So glad things are not like that in the New Covenant. Praise God for Jesus. But what about us? What, what does this mean for us? What can we take away from this sermon? Does this mean that we're no longer responsible to bring true worship before the Lord? Certainly not. God seeks people to worship Him in spirit and truth. Got to go to John 4. We have to go to John 4. right? Remember what happens in John 4? Jesus is having this conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. She's made a comment about him being a prophet. and Prophet, where is the right place to worship? Is it on the mountain in Samaria or back in Jerusalem? And the, the Lord makes this comment in verse 22 of John 4. He says, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. One of the only times where we see the Father seeking, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. See, the Lord Jesus Christ not only to, came to redeem us from our parody of worship, but He also ensured that we would become true worshipers. Do you understand that? We are called to offer even a truer worship than the Israelites. Because we have the grace, the spirit, and the full revelation of His word to empower, instruct, and enable us to offer true worship. So we must worship Him in spirit, certainly. We must. That, that is all of us, our, our emotions, our mental faculties, that worship which makes your life a constant posture of complete dependence upon the Lord, a hatred for sin, a love of Christ, a love for your neighbor, a desire to honor and glorify God in all things. It can be overwhelming, can't it? It can feel really big. It's, it's so big it's hard to narrow it down to one thing that we just really need to work on this week. That's because it doesn't work like that. Because it's not you accomplishing a checklist, it's you being overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's coming to the recognition that the radical redemption God the Father accomplished through the Son and the work of the Spirit is within you. To make you like His Son until Christ returns when we're glorified and we will worship truly forever and ever. Amen. It's to be overwhelmed with the gospel, but we're not only supposed to worship the Lord and Spirit... We're also supposed to worship Him in truth. I want to emphasize this because this is exactly what chapter 10 does. There is no worship apart from the Word of God. And if we are to be a people who truly worship God, we have to be a people of this book. It is not an option. We must study it, love it, and apply it to our lives consistently. We must sit under it as our only authority. We must let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does by working it, the Word, into our hearts, transforming us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Word does, by the way. That's what the Holy Spirit does, by the way. It never happens apart. Listen, there will never be anybody who comes to this book apart from the Holy Spirit and is transformed into the image of Christ. Never. It's not going to happen. Nor will anyone ever have the Holy Spirit and be transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from His Word. So so let me me just tell you, if you think that you have some sort of spiritual plane where you've got the Holy Spirit and and, and you're just all about feeling like you're doing better and better and better, but there's, there's no active engagement with the word of God, there's no active confession over the sins that's revealed in your life through the word of God, or repentance according to the word of God, then you're not being made into the image of Christ. He desires and decides to work through the word. That's how. So so a, a true image of somebody who's growing to the image of Christ is certainly someone who's growing in spirit, but it cannot be apart from growing in the truth. This is why, this is where we get messed up, right? This is why we want to measure how much you're studying the Word. We want to be engaged with the time we spent under the Word. Because this is the means by which God grows you into the image of Christ. The two may never be divorced, ever. If we're faithful in the study of God's Word, praise God. If we're not, then I pray the Holy Spirit convicts you, giving an unquenchable desire to know Him in His Word. I want to close with Paul's words in Romans. This will be it. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, otherwise known as true worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Praise God for His, His Word. Would you stand with me as we close? Gracious Father, there, there are many things that we could do with a With a message like this. I certainly pray you would protect us from discouragement. That you would protect us from attempting in our own strength to accomplish anything that would be pleasing to you. Yet I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin where it's needed. Lord, that you would draw us to the cross. (laughs) Lift our eyes that we may behold the author and perfecter of our faith that we might keep our sights on the true worshiper who endured the wrath we deserved for our parody of worship that we might be able to offer you true worship. Father, make that a reality. We confess together that it's not. In its present state, it's not. But we also confess that you are a God who is able to do far above what we might ask or think. You are a God who is able to glorify Himself in a church that is full of recovering parody worshipers. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Chapter 10. Um, And here comes the time of the invitation. Friends, it it should be very clear. Um, You are either a recovering parody worshiper or you're a parody worshiper and you know it through and through and you just don't care. and so, if you're in Christ, you are a covering parody worshiper. We all are struggling with that. What it looks like to offer our God the worship he deserves, a, a, a true worship both in spirit and in truth. And the reality is we, we struggle, but the good news is we don't, we don't struggle separate from one another. We struggle together. And the beautiful thing about the local church is we, listen, you need to hear this. The beautiful thing about the local church is we get to struggle together. That is a gift. Um, And so, brothers and sisters, you are truly the family of God. And if you notice areas in your life where your worship is certainly more parity than it is spirit and truth, then please confess that to a brother and sister. I I guarantee you um, you will be encouraged by their prayers for you and their love for you, their concern for you, the accountability that they can provide. And so, take that time to confess to one another. I'll be down front to help you in any way, shape, or form that I can, but... But if you're here this morning, and, and maybe you hear that story of Nadab and Abihu, and you think, they didn't deserve that. It's, it's, just, it's not that big a deal. Who, who is God to think He has the right? Then friends, you are a parody worshiper, and your worship is of self. And, and that's an issue, because you were not created to worship yourself. Your worship of self is a result of your sin. It is a rejection of the good and righteous God who is deserving of every bit of your worship. But the beautiful thing is, hear the gospel this morning. There is one who came, despite your inability in your sin to offer true worship, who came to offer perfect worship to his Father forever. And he bore the wrath that you deserved because of your imperfect, false rejection of worship. And in that, he gives you his status as the true worshiper. So now you can come into the house of the parody of worshipers with all of us. And you can know that despite our inability to offer true worship, we are sons and daughters of the king who will be received into his kingdom as if we were true and perfect worshipers. Amen. It's called grace. It's something that you cannot earn and did not deserve. And it comes through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King. And this salvation, this peace with God, it's offered to you through the gospel, which we heard today. If you would but repent of your sins, that is, turn away from a lifestyle of worshiping self and instead worship the King, and trust in the finished work that He completed on your behalf on the cross, then you today, you today can be saved. Friends, we'll all face the Lord one day. I would rather face Him covered in the blood of His Son, the righteousness of His Son, than face Him with whatever parody of worship I have to offer. Pray that for you as well. And if that's you today, if you're convicted, if the Lord's spoken to you and you want prayer, encouragement, or a deeper understanding of what the gospel is, or even to receive Christ, maybe... That's something you've done. The Spirit's convicted of you of that. And even right now, you're confessing your sin asking the Lord to save you. Then we'd love to hear about it. And we'll be down front to offer any counsel that we can. Myself will be down front. A couple of our deacons will be down front. We'd love to pray with you and minister to you.